You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Thank you all for listening. I am John Erico here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. Hello, everybody. Today, we have a very special episode with an extremely special guest that I will let Ryan introduce. We are here with Jonathan Green. Jonathan's the owner of Streamline Properties and Streamline Properties on Market, brokered by EXP. Streamline Properties is the investment arm. Obviously, the brokered by EXP part is his real estate agent agency team. He's actually a pretty good friend of mine at this point. We originally met through local real estate circles in North Jersey. And now we're actually part of the same real estate mastermind and have collaborated on a few things over the last year or two. I'll pass it over to him, but he's a seasoned and experienced real estate investor and uh, has been doing this for a while. So I'll pass it over to him now to dive into his real estate investing history a little bit. Thanks, guys. I feel so special. Uh, Great to be on. Uh, Really enjoy the podcast. So happy to come on, add some value. Uh, I've actually been investing for about 30 years, just turned 50. But I, I basically grew up doing it even earlier with my dad going into foreclosed properties that he would pull the lists in Westchester and we would go in. So I was pretty much in the door, opening doors from five years old on, getting an idea of what things cost, what repairs were, how to make offers. And then uh, when I turned 18, I started playing around and I think I was into my first property in my early 20s. But I was a participant in uh, probably hundreds of properties. Like as a kid, my dad was just advanced in the game, putting everything in our name. So my sister and I had a lot of play in terms of what was going on. And, you know, we're able to touch and view the assets at a young age just to, to see what it was. You know, and then like a lot of us, <laughs> I realized how much I learned when I got a little older and started doing it for myself. That's the background part, but you you covered my uh, my business as well, which I'm sure we'll hit over the course of the talk. Cool. I've actually never asked you this question, but what was the first deal that you did alone, I guess, in your early 20s or however old you were? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, the first house that I bought uh, on my own was in Florida. Uh, I think I was finishing law school or still in law school sometime around or just graduated. And I, I, I bought in Plantation, Florida, where I was going to law school. Uh, and I looked in a development that I liked. Obviously, Florida's full of developments. And there were about eight properties all for sale in the same, you know, they all kind of look the same. So I bought the one that was the cheapest. And all I did was paint it, re-carpet it, live there for about a year and put it back on the market. And I probably made like you know, 25 grand back then. Uh, And I was living there, but then I moved to another house. I actually sold before some of the same units that were still sitting there because it just, you know, HGTV wasn't around. This is like, I don't (laughs) know, I was 20, uh, 1994, 95. You know, we were still, there was no internet for MLS. We were just looking at stuff on paper. And I kind of didn't know that I did what I did. And when I did it, I was like, wait a minute. That was pretty easy. I really didn't do anything. It didn't yeah. even require design sense. I mean, I just painted and carpeted and and lived there for a year or so. Was there was there intention behind it? Did you did you go into that thinking that you were buying a place for yourself to live in, or were you intending to just live there just to sell it on the other side? No, I I think I was becoming my dad. <laughs> I did not <laughs> think I thought I was just going to live there. I, it was a great house. It's just like it looked the same as all the other ones. So. You know, on the exterior and developments, you can't do anything. So the only thing you can do is upgrade the interior. And at the time, like I said, there was no HGTV. So people weren't really doing anything. It was a lot of older owners. So just by kind of paying attention to the interior, cleaning stuff up, adjusting a few things in the kitchen. Once I went to sell because I was buying another place, I I realized like, oh, okay, I have become my dad. (laughs) Um, And then from there, it just kind of went off. And I mean... At the time, I was still involved with a ton of properties uh, that we had uh, through the family. And I had managed those through college uh, during the summers. I would go home and manage the properties, collect rent, 
<laughs> which is a funny story in and of itself. But uh, so I, I did have a lot of experience, but I, I went into it just thinking I was buying a nice house for myself. I think like a lot of first time buyers, they think I'm going to live here forever. <laughs> and then yeah. I don't want to live there forever. I want to like sell it because I can make money and go buy a different house and then do the same thing, which I did as well. So I think, you know, today what we, I think would be really fun to talk about is I know John is kind of more of a cerebral intellectual approach, if you will, to investing than maybe a lot of other investors of his experience level. And so I, I think it would be really cool to sort of get into the philosophy of investing, you know, why, why we invest, um, the decisions that, that you've made, for example, John, in your investing career that have led you to where you are. Um, I know you just mentioned uh, that you went to law school at some point. I'm also a lawyer and, and don't practice law, uh, or I'm assuming you don't practice law full time. Nope. <laughs> for all the listeners out there, you know, we're going to be delving a little bit into kind of the bigger picture stuff. I think that that's uh, at least what, what I'm more fascinated about. Maybe we can bring in a little bit of some specifics at the end. But I, so I, I would love to know, I, I know you, you, you know, mentioned that your dad was the impetus for this, but obviously you went to law school, right? Was that part of your career? Because I, I also went to law school and didn't know that I wanted to, you know, be going into real estate, but uh, I kind of stumbled in there. What were you, did you want to be a lawyer when you were, when you were thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, my dad was a lawyer and basically didn't make any money as a lawyer. He made all of his money uh, from real estate and he grew up with a, a gambler father. So he made everything that he did from nothing. And I, I think I went to law school because he was a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer, but, and I did like it. I was a prosecutor for seven years uh, in Florida and then had a criminal defense practice for two years. So I was active. I did about, you know, 250 trials, um, which that's the only thing that I miss. Uh, you know, Ryan knows I, I'm a good negotiator uh, in parts. Uh, so I think I went in thinking that was going to be it. And I was going to become a judge. My cousin was a judge in Florida. And then, it just, you know, my dad passed away and uh, when I was 33 and after that, I was like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I just, there was, after that happened, I think it was like a crystallizing moment for like, uh, I mean, he was super proud of me for doing law, but he was watching me do transactions. And, you know, after he was gone, I was just like, I, I'm just going to do what he did. I just want to be like him. You know, he was always a nice person, but in real estate, you know, you got to do things. I mean, we, we, we had to lock people out of houses and, you know, it was different in the old days. Yeah, It was not like it is now, like this is a different story. So I think I morphed into it, but again, I'm sure as you know, you know, going to law school and, and for me practicing for 10 years was completely invaluable to my investment journey. Mm -hmm. And I used my negotiation skills and persuasion, persuasion in terms of figuring out how to do it. And then, you know, like you were saying, I, I think I take the more hardcore negotiation type skills and tactics and techniques like Chris Voss type techniques. And then I, I, I balance it with the mindfulness where I'm into make it a win-win for all parties, uh, whether I'm on market or off market. You know, I think the goal in off market is really uh, to help people. I know a lot of people say that, but I know from you guys, you do it the same way as I do, which is why I like how you, you know, you talk about your thesis. And I think I really, I just always, I like making money. It's, it's good, but it's, you know, once you've, you've done a bunch of transactions, you're trying to make it feel good as well. And, uh, I can, most people know if you do a transaction and you make X and it feels bad, that X isn't going to make you feel any better. It's just always going to drag you down. So I, I try to steer clear of transactions that will take a mental toll on me. So when you were 33 or so, and you decided that you were going to put the, the law career on hold and transition into real estate full time, what did that evolution look like? Were you, were you going into flipping? Were you buying more rental property? Were you managing the existing portfolio that your family had? What, what was the the next step from there? And how did that evolve over time as you got more experience and maybe gained some clarity about what you wanted from the whole experience? I was always involved in the management. Uh, and then as my sister got older, she's six years younger than me, she became in, in involved as well. 
she got her MBA and we, we were managing stuff. Once my dad passed away, it was on just her and I to, to manage. My stepmom was not uh, capable of the management. So I mean, we were managing a lot of units because we traded. My dad traded a lot of units over time. So I, at the time he passed away, we were managing, I don't know, you know, 25, 30 different units because we had multiple, you know, multiple units at properties. Um, and then we, we pared it down. But I think I actually didn't go full time into real estate after my dad passed away. I went into the art world for six years. Uh, and I think I was the weirdest thing. It was like I was almost avoiding real estate as a full time career because I thought like, well, that's just, you know, my dad had a practice, not thinking like my dad literally did everything for free as an attorney. <laughs> he just <laughs> liked it. You know, he liked doing wills and estates and he was always doing real estate. And then I guess now is probably like only seven years ago that I that I got my real estate license and that helped me kind of transition into looking at my what I've been always doing as investing as like, oh, wait, I can do this all together. And then full circle, it ended up with the brand, you know, and team that, that I'm running now. But I think it took me a long time to accept that, like, this is a career. You know, it's not a side hustle, even though a lot of people do it with a regular job. Like if you want to do it right and you you want to help people get to the thing, grow, you know, an off market team or on market team, like you really need to be focused. And, you know, in terms of mindset, it, it, I think it took me getting to a certain age to do the personal growth uh, on myself that would help me scale a business and and kind of be focused with the on real estate as a portal to my kids future or to helping other people, you know, along the way. I'm curious about the decision that you made when you went full time to get uh, your real estate license. And we talked about in this podcast a little bit in the past about what is a realtor, you know, for people that are just getting into real estate investing or the real estate space, you know, what does an agent do? What does a broker do? Should I become an agent? Should I not become an agent if I want to be an investor? How does that help me or whatever else? What was your decision process in going down that path for yourself? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I uh, I was teaching a bunch of art stuff and running a, a master's museum management program at Montclair State, and I was just like kind of bored. It wasn't full time, you know, and I I wasn't really investing. You know, my sister and I were trying to move properties around. I had done some major investments, and in two thousand eight, I got demolished on two properties because I was leaving Florida. So I kind of took some some time off, and we just were managing. I got my license because I was on the phone with my sister who's also my my best friend. And I was just like, you know, I think I'm going to get my real estate license. And we both had this like aha moment, like, why the hell didn't you do this like 20, uh, 10 years ago? Yeah. I mean, and I'm a terrible salesperson. It's not about sales. It's just that I'm really data driven. I knew I was going to be good at it because I already knew everything or, you know, everything in quotes about real estate. It was just about how I was going to transition to doing it. And now you know, I think every investor should have their license. I don't, there's really no point not to, there's such a low cost to it. You right. know, it may be like a thousand dollars a year to just have access to everything and to be able to look at, at comps and, and no ARV and then be in properties to understand repair. But I also turned out I was actually pretty good at it because of, I think the mindful way that I am, I really wasn't there trying to be a salesperson. I'm a terrible salesperson. Everybody knows it. I'm good at relationships. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going after business with the intent to try to, you know, do one transaction. And that's how I ended up really starting to focus my on-market business on, on investors in some ways, because, uh, you know, my thought process was if you're an agent, your regular market, your market transaction happens once every now 10 years for a single family home, right. maybe less for a condo, you know, seven years to 10 years. But a good investor will do seven, 10 transactions a year. So if you're thinking mindfully and efficiently in terms of productivity and what you want to spend your time on, wouldn't it be more wise to spend your time really focused on investors, which I already had a good background in, because they're the ones who you can build a trust level and do multiple transactions with and, and have a relationship where you don't have to rebuild everything like taking an online lead. That kind of helped me figure it out. But I did go through lots of transitions and on market took a year off from doing both before I came back and uh, built this was which is the thing I should have built, you know, 15 years ago, but better late than never. Yeah, I mean, that that certainly resonates with me. I, I as you know, I just finally got my act together and took care of my my hours and took the real estate exam for New York. And 
hopefully soon for New Jersey. But I mean, it was probably five or six years of just leaving money on the table over the course of like 20 or 30 deals. And, you know, all of that is water under the bridge at this point. And I can only control what's what happens going forward. But I'm glad I finally decided to do that now as opposed to waiting another five years. I think the the funniest thing that people always say to me, because people always ask me, should I get my license? And I always just say yes in one second. <laughs> and, and they say, well, well, I don't I don't really want to do you know, I don't want to work with clients or do on market business, which I know you've probably said before, Ryan, a million times. But then I said, like, <laughs> but what if your best friend wants to buy a million dollar, you know, five unit apartment complex? You don't want to be the agent for that. You like investing anyway. So what I did is I started to build, you know, a team which is part, you know, regular on market business, uh, you know, traditional agents and then added investors work on my team. They don't do market transactions, but they learn. And we split our learning between on market, off market, and all the strategies on how to work with investors. You guys, I'm sure will agree with me. The biggest hole for real estate investors is that 99.9% of real estate agents don't know anything about investing. That's exactly why I built this team. I was tired of going with agents and asking like, hey, what's the rent roll? You know, what's the appreciation possibilities? You know, do you know the cap rate of this commercial building? And they're like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't know what words you're speaking. Right. And I was like, well, I, I guess do this myself. Right. But one thing I will say is, because you, I do think we are leaving money on the table, but I think the biggest mistake that flippers make is thinking that they can just immediately go in as non-experienced, non-trained not listing agent and just list their high end flips, right? Like listing is a science and the business is a science. The reason people think that it's don't is because just people think it's, there's a low bar to entry. They're completely correct. They think that we're rotating bobbleheads, but a good agent will earn their money every time. And I think that's something you learn when you get your own license. Like, you know, you don't always want to do your own transactions, but when you're good at it, then you, you do. I feel like it's being your own lawyer, right? Like even if you're a criminal defense lawyer, right? But you get arrested, you're not going to represent yourself, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah. Conflict of interest with yourself, you know, I mean, and that's the thing. I I do it now because I I became a a high-end listing agent. So I know how to market my own properties and how to separate myself from it. Like I never show my own properties. I don't show any of my own listings ever. I mean, I have a team for that, but we're very, you know, ethically sound in, in, in not doing that. I just don't know why people don't get their license. Yeah. I understand why wholesalers don't, because maybe they're trying to, you know, steer clear of the legalities of having the license. But my rationale, I, it was laziness for a while. But I think ultimately, <laughs> what I the conclusion I came to is that it's just another tool to add to my tool belt, and I don't have yeah. to use that tool on every deal. I can keep it in there if I am buying something off market, and there's not there's not room for anyone to take a commission or. I can, you know, if I'm buying something on the MLS already and I'm already doing the work to coordinate the showings and, you know, there's not really another agent involved in adding any value to the deal, I may as well step in. And even if I'm just taking a referral, it's better than nothing. It's more margin I can just build into the deal or it's cash that I could sink into the deal from an investment standpoint. If it's going to cover, you know, even if it just covers a little bit of the rehab or a little bit of the down payment, it's going to someone anyway. So, so why not me? And Hopefully, why not, John? I have a, a, a couple of questions, but I, I want to maybe take one step back and say, I, I, you mentioned 2008 and uh, some deals that went south, uh, or you know, I'd imagine everything went south, obviously. <laughs> but what I understood from you saying is that you know, your dad had a portfolio of stuff that uh, obviously you, you as a family had put together, but you know, maybe he was the instigator of. I'm assuming those were you know, either multifamily or commercial properties. It was actually mostly single families. Gotcha. Gotcha. Mostly, mostly single family rentals, right? Yeah. Yeah. He also bought in bulk. He would buy at foreclosures. So, you know, at one point, I think we bought maybe 20 condos and one development in, in Chappaqua, you know, and then we, over the years, we, we sold them. But yeah. I've done every type of deal. The deals that I've personally made the most money on in my life were single family homes that I've lived in. Mm-hmm. And that's like not a strategy that anyone talks about because they don't think it's a strategy. I've literally, that's, been a, just a crush for me because I I like living in a nice house and I like fixing up houses. So I've made a lot of money doing that way, but I've I've tried everyone as well. 
I've made a fair amount of money from houses that I lived in too. <laughs> and also it's a great tax benefit because if you live in it for long enough, you can you have to pay any uh, exactly. appreciation. I wanted to to get to that. So it, it sounds like when when you, you know, when your dad passed and you started going out on your own, even if it wasn't full time, what was your thought process with real estate? Was it, I'm just going to be opportunistic? Was it, I'm, I want to do a lot of flips, buy and hold. I want to do what you were just mentioning, live in a house, nice house, and then sell it. Was there a, like a lot of thinking about how do I do that or how do I, you know, how do I approach it? I mean, honestly, not, not really. And I think it goes to the, the mindful part of it. I've never, I never wanted to like, you know, quote, scale a business now. I mean, on market, I'm doing that, but in terms of my off market portfolio, I never cared how many doors I have, how many units I have. I just cared about how much money they were making. Mm -hmm. And if I was doing a good job managing them with the help of my sister and I think that's what kind of led me to to where I am. I don't think like, oh, I want to flip. I'm always adjusting to the market. Like right now, you know, <laughs> Ryan and I always talk about it, you know, like flipping's a pain in northern New Jersey. Yeah. But I mean, oh, yeah. I'm still finishing one now, but I'm looking at, you know, Burr model. And then I reverse the R's in the Burr model, which I think is a better way to do things if you have cash to leave in a deal, which instead of like buy rehab rent, I buy rent sit on it for two, three years, soak appreciation in a hot neighborhood, wait till the people leave, then do the rehab, then refinance and mm. repeat. Then you, or, or just, or just flip and sell at that point, right. I just cut it short. But again, there's different strategies for, for what you have to put in if you have cash or if you have verified lending. And I have been fortunate enough to, to go through my life, you know, learning from my dad and having a, a you know, a bunch of properties to, to work from. So I've always been appreciative about that. And I don't think I've ever tried to abuse it and say, I want to, you know, I want to turn X into 10 X in one year. And I think that's why I've never lost big, but for 2008. And honestly, even when I got, you know, demolished on two properties, I I was fine because I've always looked at investing as a complete diversification, just like you would you know, a stock portfolio or anything else. Yeah, I think it's a great point that you bring up because I, I even think back to Ryan and I are our, our investing portfolio over the past couple of years. And I think some of the some of the biggest successes that we've had, we didn't go into them with the, the strategy that ultimately turned out to be successful. Like I'm thinking of we have a a property, I guess two properties actually in New Haven. And we went into both of those properties with the idea that we were going to hold them long term kind of wait for the market to appreciate whether that's in five years or 20 years or whatever it is, just kind of enjoy the cash flow, um, write it out. One of them was a mixed use building. The other was a, a vacant four unit building and the four unit building, you know, we, we, it was unlivable. So we had to renovate before we could rent it out, but we sold that what within a little over 12 months of buying it, something like that. And you know, that, that, I mean, depending on how you looked at it, that was our maybe our best flip we've ever done because we you know we went into it thinking we're going to renovate it just for a tenant to live in it and then by the time we were done with it the whole market you know because of what's been going on macro level the whole market had appreciated we we're like oh my gosh we could ca- I, mean, we have, I don't know how much we made on it we probably certainly over 100 grand yeah, and, we and made, this is on a property that we bought for 100 right i mean we made some in, insane return on this property we did not even go into it thinking it would be a flip I can tell that story four or five different times with other properties that I've I've been involved in. Yeah, the beauty of doing that strategy or of executing upon that strategy with a multifamily is that by the very nature of what you're doing, you're hedging your bets. If a lot of people think of flipping as being exclusive to single families, and to some extent, that's true. I mean, that's where you're generally going to see the most appreciation but that, because that's where most people who are planning to occupy a property, that's what they're looking for. But when you're going into that when you're going into a a renovation on a multifamily house you may want to sell it but if the market softens or you go over budget or something else happens it's really nice to have the safety net of knowing that you have multiple sources multiple streams of income on that one property and a, generally speaking a multifamily is going to have a much better chance of cash flowing which kind of hedges your bet against the exit of the flip yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, the three of us have talked about this, you know, just on, on Clubhouse last week. I mean, I think when you're looking at all investments, you know, you should you should always have a, a backup plan in mind. You know, you're really looking at dual strategies because you never know what's going to happen. Right. Um, and there's no way to really, 
you don't want to just be stuck with one strategy. You know, like I was saying for my whole investment, I never pigeonholed. I like to look at everything. That's why, you know, Ryan, we were looking at self-storage, you know, and we did, we did calls on mobile homes. I'll look at anything if it's a vehicle that can do something, you know, good for me or my family. And and I think it's just, that's another, you know, I think what's missing in what new investors are looking to, they're just thinking like, I want to make money and I don't want to do a job. That's basically like modern investing. It's just silly. And I understand why, you know, companies, you know, play into that. But like those people are not going to like 1% will be successful if lucky. You have to build money to use money. It's like when somebody says, well, I want to be an investor, but I don't have any money. Well, I mean, if you look at the definition of investing, you have to invest something and it's not just time or your brain. It's it's an asset. And if you don't have an asset, then you have to build the skills or the money to get into the market. And like, I, I just don't see the hacking to investment, which everybody's trying to do. And then they, I guess the comeback to that is, oh, well, you, you know, you grew up with, you know, with money or properties and like I, I did, but I didn't squander them. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned everything that I can and I'm careful. I don't, I don't try to get doors. I don't even know how many doors I have, nor do I care because it doesn't make any difference. You know, mm-hmm. it's not something I need to put on, uh, you know, some call to action to tell people this is what I've done. I'm just doing my stuff, whether it's undercover, or anybody knows about it. Now I just feel like it's good, you know, for the last year building this off market brand is just sharing information to help new yeah. investors not go down the rabbit hole or, or go spend, you know, 50,000 on some mentoring (laughs) off market wholesaling (laughs) mentoring program that they could learn in the forums or on, you know, our REI zooms every week for free. So (laughs) it's, it's a weird thing out there. It's weird. I wanted to circle back to your, sounds like one of your favorite strategies of house hacking a single family doing a live in flip. Can you speak to how you've approached those in the past? Do you look at them through the lens of what you want to live in? Do you look at them through the lens of uh, of just being a flip that you're going that you happen to be planning to live in, or um, like how do you how do you balance the two? Great question. I, I I like houses. I've always been obsessed with houses because I would just go to so many with my dad. I mean, we would also go to yard sales the whole weekend, and he would offer on every single property that was having a yard sale. <laughs> um, so I've just been looking at houses my whole life. So I, I buy houses that I like, I want to live in them and I want to like do things to them that eventually make them more valuable. Uh, but I learned on my last, you know, flip in Montclair, which I did, you know, really well on that I can just live as is and like it. And then I can move and flip it after I move. And that's how I'll make the most money. And so that's really my live in strategy. I had done live in flips before. A lot of them were customizing, you know, uh, where I was living at the time and just kind of learning on the go. So many people do things in their business or in their lives that don't also have the enjoyment part. And it's especially popular in house hacking. You know, like if you're comfortable living in the basement and you're single or a couple and you both agree, then like, yeah, house hack and live in the basement. But like, just yeah. like John. dude, if you <laughs> do, if you, I don't want to do that. I'm old. Like I want to live in a nice house. It doesn't have to be fancy. I don't care if people know where I live, but like, I like it to look nice. I'm a minimalist. I want things. And that's why I like flipping. So, I, you know, coming back to how to buy, it's always about buying in neighborhoods that are going to appreciate. And I've just been great at finding those. You know, I look for outskirts or develop where I, you can, you, when you know it, you can see it and you're like, oh, okay, I'm going to buy something here. I really want to live here. And P.S. in two years, this could be worth double. And like, you know, that's why I'm so hot on Philadelphia right now. I'm just watching these neighborhoods appreciate and like I can just soak up appreciation, just sit there a couple of years and make money. One thing I've noticed about you in particular from following you on Instagram, I, I know you very much have an affinity for the design aspect of real estate. Uh, and I think you just touched on that on in your last answer. But I'm curious how you balance trying to get everything absolutely perfect with working within the constraints of a budget when you're flipping or doing a live-in flip? (sighs) Well, you guys know as well as I do, there's nothing perfect because contractors sometimes can't do perfect. I mean, houses don't do perfect, but I do have a little bit of OCD. And because I was an art curator for so long, I have like high aesthetic expectations. 
So in general, I will spend more to make less if it makes a better product, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. I'm ne- I will always spend more and accept less because I want it to look better. To be honest, most of the time I do that, I still make the same amount because the choices that I make are ones that your modern buyer really wants or it's an upgrade. It's like, you know, do you want to fix a roof that's not you know, leaking all the way through, but you know, it's going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to fix the roof, you know? And I think that's, and again, because I have assets, it's easier for me to make that decision. But I think that if you're in flipping, you know, the reason why it's hard for good investors and good flippers is because there's a lot of bad ones out there, you know, you know, we've all looked at properties where you're like, well, I mean, (laughs) the dryer vents just like, venting into a wall you know everything's a fire hazard like they're just not doing it the right way because they don't want to spend the money so i always trend in the direction of of doing the right thing but you do have to make hard decisions you know at the price point that you're at you know do you want to finish the basement or not is someone going to complain about this yes but like also i love the modern buyer but they watch too much hgv hgtv (laughs) like you're just not I, you can't get a Chip and Joanna Gaines uh, full reno and also pay three fifty in a hot market. Like, sorry, you're not getting a finished basement. We uh, we talk about that a lot. We've talked about that in this podcast. Even that it's it's unfortunate, but the bar is very low. Um, the the bar for acceptable, um, or I shouldn't say acceptable, but the bar that just exists out there, particularly from a management perspective. Like when I started buying properties in uh, Hudson County. Um, just even being remotely competent as a property manager already, I already stood out in that context because so many other property managers were the absolute worst, you know, just slumlords sucking cash out of their properties as much as possible. And I think the same is true, maybe to a different extent, but with flipping, I mean, we, I've been in so many terrible flips where if, if you have any idea what you're looking at, it's just abysmal. We feel that a lot. And one of our big frustrations, I mean, I think Ryan has talked about this, but like, you know, we have a project in East Orange right now that we did a great job on. We really cared about the details. We replaced all the electrical plumbing, HVAC, you know, everything behind the walls, everything out to the street. And we kept some original stuff in the house, some molding, some doors, that sort of stuff. And we have this sort of like, you know, struggle uh, to get a CO, which is uh, ridiculous, but because the, you know, the, <laughs> the um, building inspector is like, oh, well, these moldings are old, you know, they're cracked, they're uneven, they're this and that. And it's like, you know, kind of him calling us out for doing bad work. And we're like, dude, we did the best work. You know, we did all the stuff that nobody's going to see. We replaced all the mechanics. You know, we did everything behind the wall. The, right, the we, stuff spe- that we, we, we spent $75,000 on the things that you don't see. Right. Most people would spend $20,000 yeah. on the things that you see and tell you it's great. Right. And we kept, we kept the stuff because we liked it. We thought it looked cool. Right. You know, it, it, that's, you know, that was the aesthetic we were going for. Right. It just, you know, so it's uh, like when you get in that, in that mentality where, where you're in a city, I mean, I don't mean to pick on East Orange, but we've just had experiences there. But like, you know, when you're, when so many people try to rip so many people off because they do such shoddy work, when somebody comes in and does good work, they're like, oh, well, you must be hiding something, right? You must be doing, you know, like, we're, no, what's I the mean, catch? Yeah, we literally talk, I, but the modern buyer thinks that also. Modern buyer, it's much harder to sell a flip. We're watching homes that are just like people living in them selling for, you know, 75,000 over. Right. 20 offers and then we have like a nice flip on the market and it gets like three offers and everyone's asking all these weird questions you know like what kind of walls are those or did you do all the electric and we're like yeah we did everything <laughs> again we did all the stuff yeah. you know you you're having an inspector we're not hiding anything you know and i do think it's you know aesthetics goes a long way but doing the right thing behind the walls is just as important and we suffer from the amount of people that are out there doing it yeah. the wrong way and i try to steer everyone in the right direction. But again, you know, a lot of people get crunched for money right now. I'm seeing a lot of quarter done flips coming out, (laughs) coming on the market, you know, on the wholesale market where it's just like, you really thought you were going to spend $11,000 on a flip. Like this is a $70,000 job. People don't know how to assess repair costs, get themselves over their head because they're so jacked up to just be an investor. And now they're broke. I mean, and people don't like to hear it, but Sorry. I mean, I don't want them to go broke. Yeah. No, I, I think we, Ryan and I, again, we talked about this multiple times, but people also don't know how to assess holding costs. That's a huge blind spot, you know, particularly if you're if you're financing it, if you're getting bridge financing or whatever, where your interest rate is not a joke. I mean, your holding costs 
they really su- can easily suck up your profit. So when I when people say, oh, I want to flip, I want to buy a property to flip, uh, and they show me the numbers, I'm like, well, you're not going to make any money at all. Because even if you think that's 50K profit, I mean, 45 of that is going to be in your holding costs, and then you're going to have to pay a broker to sell it. And I mean, you're underwater. And you're going to be you know? over budget by 20 grand. <laughs> right, and you're going to be over budget. So, <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, I mean, if you look at a first time flipper, every time everything I say is, oh, what's your, well, you know, what's your expected rental cost? Double that. What's your expected time frame? Double that. Right. You know, there is no, there's no profit left, you know, and what, it, why did you buy so high? You're not overbid on an yeah. investment property. You know, that's P- people who hear you say double that and they'll be like, oh, that's just something he says. But like, literally, that's the case. <laughs> I'm <laughs> literally yeah. serious. Yeah. I mean, I'm completely serious. I mean, I, I've had to do it before. They just don't understand what stuff costs. Right. And the, it, it, it's like, you know, you, you, you can't just hack knowing repair costs. You can't read the book and know what the repair costs are. Right. You have to know it. You have to smell it. You have to see it. You have to know what knob and tube looks like, you know, what a messed up foundation looks like, what electric costs, why does it cost this much, how to do a sewer inspection, why you need to do a sewer inspection, because you don't want to lose $15,000 after you close. Yeah. So like I'm obsessive with my clients and on my own property. So even when I'm buying as is, I tell them, yeah, definitely. I will buy it as is. I'm doing my own inspections. They're for informational purposes only. However, if I uncover something catastrophic that none of us could imagine and you didn't disclose, I reserve the right to ask you if you'd like to negotiate that. And if not, I'll just walk away. And that's what keeps me in transactions uh, you know, I think off-market people uh, want to work. You know, with people like us, I'm not a pain. I'm realistic. If I can see it, it's accounted for in my rehab costs. Right. If you have a cracked sewer, that's not accounted for, and I'm going to get that money, or I'm not going to buy it. Right. Right. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and and go to a topic. It's a question that I get a lot, and I'm wondering, given your experience, what your perspective would be on it, but. A lot of times real estate investors come to me and they say, oh, you know, you do this full time. And, um, you know, Ryan and I have done some flips. Ryan has done more than I have. But a lot of my stuff has been buy and hold. And they'll ask, you know, how do you make money to survive? Because, you know, either like, you know, either I'm doing a flip and my payout is going to be, you know, whatever, 12 months after I pay in, or I'm doing a buy and hold investment and maybe my cap rate is really good or whatever else, but still I'm only, you know, netting maybe 500 bucks a month or maybe 700 bucks a month. And that can be wiped out. You know, if I have a roof that goes or I have to replace the board, you know, that can wipe out an entire year's worth of profits. So I wonder, you know, when you look back on your real estate stuff, you know, and obviously we don't have to talk specific numbers, but is it, you know, is is your kind of living expenses, are they like, hey, one year I, you know, made everything through flips, another year I made everything through the brokerage, or this year I made everything through my rental properties, or is it, you know, do you have a strategy to that? I mean, I think I've always been diversified in life. You know, I've always, uh, at times I was high in stocks or high in bonds or adjusted into index funds. I do everything to make sure that, you know, my kid's future is safe, and that I'm making money and I don't have to, I guess I would say over budget, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a fortunate thing. But again, when you're managing stuff full time for yourself, that is a part of the job. So not losing money if you have some is, is you can just look at all the people who win the lottery and spend all the money in a year. Like you have to be smart. And I think I've always looked at it as having a a fully, you know, I guess diversified portfolio. So if, yeah, some years I do two, three, five flips, make a lot of money that way, see if I can transfer that into something else. Uh, Other years, uh, I did learn growing up, though, buy and hold, you know, was my dad's thing. So I was, you know, making passive income as a kid and learning about it. Again, I did collections for him and I would I would (laughs) I would come home in the summers and there'd be this ledger, uh, a paper ledger on the on the counter you know, and he would mark for an X for every time they paid rent. And I would get there out of college in May and I'd look at the ledger and I'm like, how come there's no marks from January? He's like, oh, well, you know, they're a little behind. They, they had a baby. And I'm like, but you want me to do the collections. Mm -hmm. Nobody's paid since January. Like, are you serious? (laughs) This is just, my dad was like the nicest guy ever. And so I would have to massage those collections and I think by looking at that, I became buy and hold, you know, because I had passive income and I, I that helped me not have to overstress about, you know, am I going to make, 
you know, this profit or not. And, and uh, I think the, the biggest thing that I learned is I, I'm not interested in little cash flow or little profit. Right. That is of no use to me because the possibility of failure is so high. So I'm, I can say no. Right. And I think most investors struggle with that when they want a deal. Like, I want it so bad. Like, it, there's literally a million other deals. Like, just say no. That's why on the, on all our calls, everyone calls me the deal killer because they send me they send me their deals. And I'm like, are you literally on drugs? You, mm -hmm. You're not doing this deal. I will punch you if you do this deal. Yeah. Put it in the garbage. You're not going to make any money. You're actually going to lose money. Or why, why is everyone so excited to say they have 50 doors and they're all making $100 a yeah. door? That's like the silliest thing that I've ever heard in, in my life. A hundred dollars a door is is not that you, literally. And someone can sneeze, and there goes your profit for the month. Yeah. You know, a furnace goes out, you, four years of profit down the drain on on one property. Totally. So, I, I just never thought in terms of small returns. And I'm patient. I, I don't need to have, you know, again, I don't need to have a number of doors each year to feel like I, I've done something. I can buy nothing one year and feel fine. I think you touched on something really interesting, which is not not the lens that a lot of real estate investors look at deals through, which is the risk reward kind of calculus. And Ryan and I sometimes talk about not the risk, but the agony reward context, but it's kind of the same different way of looking at it. You know, a lot of people, I think, will go to a deal and say, oh, I could make whatever. I could make 50 grand in a deal. I could make 100 grand in a deal. But the counter to that is either A, it's incredibly risky because I'm, I'm relying on some macroeconomic factor or relying on something happening that I don't fully have control over. Or B, to our agony point, it causes me so much agony and insanity to go through it that even if I make $100,000, I would just rather do anything else to make you know $25,000 four times because I'm just not going to to suffer through it. So it's, it's for, I think, you know, what, what I hear you saying is that it's not, it's not really about the dollar amount so much, although you want to make a lot of money. It's also about weighing the other factors that go into your, in your case, risk, in our case, like agony, how do all those things come together to make a good deal? Something else you said also stuck out to me, which is that you are the deal killer. And, and something I've noticed about you is that you're you're very willing to say no, whether that's for yourself or for someone else. And I think that that's very important, especially for the type of person who likes to shoot from the hip. Their inclination is going to be to say yes to everything. And ultimately, that's going to lead them down the wrong path. And so it's very important to either realize that about yourself and at least, at least think through the possibility of why you might want to say no, or to have someone in your corner who can be there for you to be kind of like a check or a guide rail, uh, preventing you from going off on that? Yeah, on and that's that the dynamic journey. that we have. You, I think I'm more like, yeah, let's let's like right. let's like yeah, <laughs> like I walk into like yeah, I want to buy it. But then Ryan is always like, well, <laughs> uh, are you sure about that? <laughs> and and so, sometimes, frankly, I wish I put my foot down a little bit more. But you know, all of the there's a difference between saying no and avoiding doing something because you're uncomfortable with it or because it's going to be a little bit annoying versus saying no to something because it has the potential to be catastrophic. And I think that sometimes I have a tendency to say no to things that are just a little bit uncomfortable or going to be a little bit annoying. But at the end of the day, those are either where the rewards are or where the learning comes from. To play off that, I mean, your comfort level is so important. Like if you don't like people, don't become a landlord or make sure you understand that you need to pay for it. Everyone always says, oh, real estate investing. I want to get into real estate investing because it's passive income. I've literally never been involved in a business that's less passive than yeah. real estate. It's annoying 24-7. The returns are great. You have to pay for passivity. If you want passive income, you're paying for it because you're paying other people to manage the property. Yeah. And that's why your returns have to be great. But I've always looked at deals as, is this going to annoy the crap out of me? You know, is this is this project going to kill me? And I will take less on a project if I really like like it. I'm like that same, like you said, John, like there are projects where I'm like, the one I'm doing in Montclair now, after all the disasters, I mean, I won't make as much as I thought. I mean, I could with this crazy market, but I really like it. Like I'm going to be proud of yeah. it. Like a guy, Ryan, with the South Orange flip, it's like, yeah, okay, it, it took a long time to get there, but like, I feel good about this. And I think that it, that's a kind of valid way to look at it as I, I don't want to take away from my life 
and become a real estate investor is doing, you know, 15 off market appointments a day. I mean, I'll, I'll, 13 would be terrible, mm-hmm. you know, so yeah. I've adjusted my off market marketing and the way that I look at properties and how I evaluate. And one thing I'll say is, you know, modern real estate investing culture is so obsessed with, you know, calculators and, and Ryan's a great analyst, but he has an entire system of why he's analyzing mm-hmm. your modern investors, just punching numbers into a, a form and not looking at any properties and saying, I've analyzed 50 properties. No, you've done nothing. You don't know what those numbers even mean. So what's the point? I I use absolutely no calculators at all. I'm basically on a smell test. Yeah. And I can do that because I've been looking for so long, but I can, someone can tell me in numbers, I can be in a house, you know, for five minutes and they'll say, oh, you know, you get it from a wholesaler. It says 20 grand rehab and you walk in and you're like, haha, right. this is 75 grand without even a question. Yeah. And you can only get that, you know, from experience. And I stick to spreadsheets because I have a really bad sense of smell and an even drier sense of humor. But I, ha- I have my whole life on spreadsheets, but it's just when it comes to the actual finesse, I believe in myself over the spreadsheet. Not, But like in self-storage, we need the spreadsheets because we're evaluating a business. So in commercial, it's different. But like one-offs on single family, I'm just like, okay, 300 buy-in, 75 reno. My ARV is, I know the ARV because I have access. I'm like, okay, it's 520. This is a good deal. Let's go. I don't really need to think about anything else. The The problem with spreadsheets, in my mind, especially with beginner beginners, is that beginners tend to look, especially if you have like an analytical or a finance background, they, they tend to look at the spreadsheet as gospel. And for a flip, that just doesn't work because your numbers are your numbers are only good as the assumptions you're making. And I like a spreadsheet in a lot of occasions or in a lot of instances because a spreadsheet's a good reminder of the things that I should be focused on. If I'm looking at a rental, is the are the real estate taxes that I'm forecasting realistic? Is something going to be reassessed? Are the repairs and maintenance numbers I'm thinking about, are they really high? In which case, maybe there are some ways for me to to lower them over time by, you know, getting more cost effective with uh, some of the fixtures that we have, or maybe insulating the walls if we're doing a short term rental and we're going to be paying for utilities, things like that. But if you don't know any of the soft side of it, then your your spreadsheet's not going to be your spreadsheet. Yeah. Like the number that your right. spreadsheet is spitting out is as worthless as the well, paper. I think, that it's I think a on. big a big error too that I've seen people make that are relying on spreadsheets is that there's a lack of understanding of the sensitivity right. that some numbers can have towards your returns. So if you're looking, like again to like holding costs, right? Like if you're like, well, if I increase my hold time from eight months, twelve months, which is really not that much in the context of a flip. How does that affect my profits? Well, that could wipe it out, right? So you're very sensitive to that number. But if you're not familiar with how it flows, you don't know that. I take that backwards a step because the, the the problem with new investors and spreadsheets is you, like what, what you were saying, Ryan, is you have a, a rationale behind, I'm going to reduce this and there's things in the walls I need to work on. Your modern first time investor who's just hitting it and is not watching, looking at properties will just be like, oh, the deal, I put it in, you know, I want whatever, I want a one, you know, 1% rule. And they're like, it doesn't work. And then they're like, well, I'll just move this number around. Right. And they just start playing with numbers because it auto calculates. And they're like, oh, look, it works. Right. And it's like, you still haven't seen the property. Right. How can you be just messing around with the your rehab? You, you don't know anything. It's too easy to make something work when it auto calculates. You just keep doing it until you get to 1%. That doesn't make it a good yeah, deal. Right. And I mean, I think that again, goes back to, to patience and you know, people want things when they want it, but that's how you lose money yeah. in real estate. I think I think about it. I, I, I uh, was talking to somebody recently about um, uh, rental property, buy and hold investment, and I that what what I I always think about as being a landlord is that as a landlord, you're you're living a little bit of somebody else's life for them, right? You you're responsible for where they live, and that's a big component of their life. And depending on how you do it, so like we do short term rentals, for example we're living a larger portion of those people's lives for the time that they're there because we're more responsible for stuff, we're responsible for the furniture, the utilities, whatever else. But even if you're a normal landlord, you're, you have, you're living a little piece of somebody's life. So the question is, if you're buying a property and you're renting it to a certain person or class of people or whatever, 
do you want to live a little bit of that person's life? Because oftentimes the answer is maybe not, you know, maybe I don't want to live a little bit of a person's life who is, you know, month to month and, um, you know, struggling with all sorts of different issues. And maybe the numbers are okay because you're buying it at such a low rate and this and that and section eight and whatever. But, you know, it's like, do you want to live a little bit of that person's life? Do, do you want to be involved in that person's problems? Because as a landlord, you're going to, you're going to do that. So, you know, that's another part of that like agony question, right? Yeah, and I wish. Yeah, I would say I think it goes to all parts of growing, you know, a business and specific to real estate is that you have to understand in every part where you need a buffer, you know, which you guys I'm sure understand a, a partnership. When when my sister and I invested, you know, we buffered each other. She did all of the collections via email, would never talk on the phone. If someone needed to get evicted, I used my loss license and I would evict them in New York. And when we needed to do collections, we had a property manager to do collections. Now with flips, I use the same buffer strategy to save myself from myself because right. I get annoyed. I know that I don't want to live the contractor life and I have a, a zero tolerance for everything. So my project manager, Jenny Burke, she's also like my closest friend. We do basically all the projects together, even if one of us is just financing it ourselves. We're literally just looking at stuff all the time together. And she's my buffer. She's my project manager. I act as the GC. And I know that if I don't have her, I'll never finish a job because I'll fire everybody. And knowing what works for you is the most important part. Like you were saying, like, I'm not good with tenant problems. So I'm not that type of landlord. Yeah. I'm having someone else be that type of landlord because the truth is I don't want to, it's not that I don't care if a tenant's having a personal struggle. I don't want to be put in the position between me getting my rent and having to hear it. And it's not a good use of my time. So I'll outsource that. But, you know, in flipping without Jenny, I, I like I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't finish because she's there on site and saying she's, you know, figuring out how to make the thing happen between me and somebody yeah. else who could become adversarial. And then I think I learn from that to, to not, you know, and you have to know just what you were saying as an investor, you have to know what you're willing to partake in or else you will inadvertently become more of a slumlord landlord because you just don't care. Then don't have those properties or get them properly managed. I think that's a big part of this. The, the thing that you can only really learn by experience is how kind of to, how you're going to react to those situations, right? Like if a land, if a tenant is saying, Hey, I'm late on rent because of X, Y, Z, are you going to freak out? Or are you going to say no problem? You know, whatever. And also, you know, to your point about working with contractors or whatever, you know, your patience level is like, you know, or even a negotiation, right? Like how, how far do I take it? Right? Like how, like, like, is this the time to go aggressive? Is this the time to say, I'm going to sit back? Is this the time to assert myself or not? I, I mean, we struggle with that all the time. We had a crazy tenant that I, we've been dealing with in Atlantic city that we're trying to get out of an apartment. And, you know, he just, whenever I see him, he's just as crazy to me. And I have to think to myself, like, is it worth it to me to engage with this guy? You know, like, I, cause I could, I could go to a hundred, right? You know, I, I could get really angry, raise my voice, but it's like, yeah. you know, I'm going to have to step back and say, I, it's not worth it. Right. To John's point about it being experiential, it's, there are, I would say of the projects that we have going now, if maybe there are across the board, a dozen projects going on right now for us, there are maybe three or four of them that were, in right now, and they are examples of projects that if they were brought to us today, we would not do them. But we're just trying to wrap them up, get them off of our plate, and use it as an experience to say, like, okay, this is it. Kind of like it's like a pro it's like a we're like kind of arriving at our strategy by process of elimination. So we're crossing these things off of our list, and we're sticking to the types of things that we do enjoy, which more recently has been the short term rentals. It's been renovating these specific properties down in Atlantic City for short-term rental. And that's really where we're doubling and tripling down. And all of these and feel, other... feel good. Exactly. Feel good renovations, like feeling right. good doing it, contributing right. and, to the community. And, yeah. And, and not trying to not trying to pinch every penny and say, you know, like we'd we'd love to do we'd love to do this, but it's not going to make us any more money. So we should skip it. it. You know, on these projects we're able to say, okay, an extra five thousand dollars or whatever 
in upgrades isn't going to break the bank, but it's going to give us a much better product yeah. and it's going to give us like something I, that we're proud of. Yeah, I mean, I, I did something that I think by any metric would be financially insane recently. I basically built an arcade um, <laughs> out of wood because, uh, and to put in one of our Airbnb properties, I didn't even, I did it, I mean, I have the, the pieces of it over here for the one that I want to build for myself, but I prioritized doing the one in Atlantic City. And it's like, it's not going to make me any more money at all. I mean, maybe like someone in a review would be like, oh, that's pretty cool. You had an arcade machine or whatever. It costs me money and time because I bought all the materials and I spent, you know, uh, several weekends doing it. Which we owe you but, for, by the way. Well, whatever. But, <laughs> you know, but I but I, I felt really good about it. I was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, I'm going to like make it make a part of a cool experience. Like, it was something that I could do and I was interested in. And I felt fun about it. And, it, you know, it's totally unrelated to real estate. But I was like, that made me feel good about the whole project because I was like, I'm doing something really cool. Like, that's I've never seen that in an, in an Airbnb before. Like, that's awesome, right? Yeah. And one of so, the things I've noticed with some of the projects that we're doing now is when I first started in real estate, my first flip, I was so jazzed about it. I was so into every decision. I was so into learning every single thing that I didn't know. And then for a while (laughs) after that, everything that I was doing, just it started to feel like work. And every, you know, every, every issue that came up stopped being a learning opportunity. It just became a pain in the ass. And now with some of these projects, again, every time I walk into them and I see the progress, it's exciting again and it's reinvigorating. And yeah. I, I, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, I think is a big part of it. These have been performing really well as short-term rentals. And I think that makes the journey a little bit more palatable when, when things do come up. But to your point, it's like doing things like that and that additional investment, it has like a positive, it elicits a positive emotional response that is missing when you're just flipping to make money. And that, that's so important, I think, in, in business and also in real estate is like that emotional thing because people are emotional creatures. Buyers are emotional people too. And so like capturing that, understanding that, respecting that you're going to have an emotional connection to something, you know, that that's an important part of being a business person. And I think that that, again, like if you're looking at the spreadsheets, you're not going to put in a column to be like, how, how is this going to make me, am I going to be happy about that? Like, what's my emotional <laughs> response to this line item, right? It's just not part of the calculus. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's always a dynamic between running it like a business and then being emotionally involved in your business. The emotional part is good when you're learning things and adding to it from it. But, uh, you know, with tenants and situations like totally, that, or yeah. people who, you know, they want to get paid early because they're, they did their contracting early. Like that's where you really have trouble separating it. Uh, and that's where a lot of investors just lose all their money because they're, they're going into feeling bad. And, I have less emotions than a normal person, <laughs> but I still, my comeback for all of that is, you know, we have a relationship, but this is a business relationship yeah. and in a business relationship, like this is how it works. You know, it doesn't mean the outside can't work, but uh, I just think it's important. But to, to touch on your point about just getting, you know, inspired by it, I, I just want to hit on one thing and, uh, about four years ago, I, I went uh, on a trip to Tippi Tapa, Nicaragua with uh, with Give Back Homes and Concierge Auctions. And we worked with a company there called Techo. Uh, and in five days, we built five homes from scratch wow. for uh, families awesome. that literally were living in homes that had three sides, three walls. And the top was a metal roof that was flying off yeah. and outhouses. In two days, we built the homes and they were pushed up against them and they were two full bedrooms. And I think that changed the way that I look at investing, real estate, the word home, and made me take a little bit more of the mindful approach, which I ended up at. And it goes to what, you know, inspires you. Sometimes it can be building the arcade for no reason because you want to make it nice for them. This trip made me look at like, I literally can't believe it. It was raining outside. They don't even have a front on the home. And these kids are jumping on the bed playing, you know, and I'm like, okay, one, I have it really lucky to be able to do this and I'm not going to squander it by trying to make a zillion dollars. I'm going to try to do good. I all want to make money because I want my kids, you know, future to be secure and I'm never going to pass on that for other reasons. But I think when you do something like that, you you just look at it in a different way. And when I look at houses now, I just I guess I see the whole thing. It's why I like the aesthetics of it. But to your point, Ryan, you can get to a point where I don't want it to be a machine where I don't like it. I don't want to be an assembly line, you know, of flips because that just doesn't do anything yeah. for me personally. Every flip to me is a one-off. It's totally. not like a, a we're going to use this X, Y, Z. I, I like to, it's different. I'm looking at them all as like a new canvas to paint on. 
Well, that I think, yeah, that that's real estate. I think in a nutshell, it's it's you know, real estate is not is unique. Every piece of property is unique. Even every piece of land is unique. I mean, we find that in Atlantic City for sure because we pay different amounts of money for them. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're we're wrapping up here, John. But I, I would love to hear from you, maybe as a concluding thought. You know what what are you what are your goals in the future? You know how are you structuring your life, your business? Do you want to go somewhere? Do you want to? Do you have any direction that that you're you're pushing the boat? My on-market team, you know, I'll give the links before I hop off. But I mean, I think that's, it's really interesting to me because I really think that we're, we really helping people, buyers and sellers and your general investor learn, you know, and that's combined with my off-market portal and, excuse me, all the uh, real estate investment events and clubhouses that we do that you guys have been on. I just feel like I'm a teaching portal or a mentor for people for free. Will it be great if all the people on my team and my team members that I've hired, they all do well? Yeah, my job is to make them successful. I feel like I'm taking stuff that my dad taught me and putting it in for a good reason. And and when I do this, I make out well, but I don't make out too well. You know, I think the profits for both mentally, financially, and I guess universally are just shared. So I, I don't have any like number of units I, I, I want to... Uh, you know, I want to get, I do want to, I'm interested in apartment buildings now. You know, I understand the management. I had a bunch of commercial properties, so that's where I'm looking, but I still like flipping. I just may do it in that reverse Burr model. But I really think that my goals over the next five years are just kind of help educating as many investors as I can, uh, making sure they don't lose their money and building this, you know, this off-market brand, which is Zen and the Art of Real Estate Investing, which is just a portal for free for people to learn about investing. You know, you guys have been involved in, in, in some of those things. And I, it, I also think it goes to demystify what it is and what it isn't. And because I'm, <laughs> I'm very straightforward, you know, there's a su- subset of people who, who think that I'm uh, rude because I just tell the truth. But, you know, if somebody tells me, oh, is, it's like when somebody asks you, oh, this deal, this is the best deal ever. Is is it? You know, of course it's not. What do you think? All the good investors missed out on this deal that's on the market <laughs> right. 366 days. You know, and then because I just say that, you know, it bends people out of shape. But like, that's fine. You know, that's my brand. I look at it, you know, a piece of art is not for everybody. When people used to tell me when I had galleries for so long, you know, oh, I really hate that. I'm like, great. I'm glad that you have an opinion. It's much better than just walking by and doing nothing. Totally. And when I look at my flips, I, I am appealing to a subset. I don't want my flip properties to be for everybody. I want them to either obsessively love them and want to offer a, like as much as they can for it, or I want them to not like it and aggressively not like the decisions that I made because in the middle is just like a development and I don't want to live in a development. In- I mean, not in general, but I don't want to do yeah. that kind yeah. of renovation. In the middle, you're with everyone else. Well, thank you so much, John. This is fantastic. How can people get in touch with you and find out about the stuff that you're doing? Uh, so the website is streamlined with a D at the end, dot properties. No, not dot com, just www.streamlined.properties. And that is our regular website, which has on market and some off market stuff on Instagram. It's the same at streamlined properties, no dot. My personal Instagram is trust green with an E at the end. You're only going to go there if you, I mean, Ryan knows for me. I literally just post stuff about clouds. I lost, I just don't give a crap about social media. You know, we have a Facebook business page because it's for business. I'm on LinkedIn for all those things. You can find us there. But uh, the arm that we're really working on is this Zen and the Art of Real Estate Investing, which is part of Streamline Properties, our off-market LLC. Um, And we do, right now we're doing, we were doing four Zooms a week. Now we're doing two Zooms a week. We do a Tuesday night New Jersey Zoom uh, for investors. Gets about 20, 30 people each time. Wednesday, every Wednesday, we're on Clubhouse at seven with a different topic. Uh, oh, it's tonight. <laughs> tonight Tonight is actually t- not in the future, but tonight is uh, on wholesaling. Thursday, we do a, a Philadelphia REI call, which gets about 30 people. We're opening a Florida REI call. We put these out through the events page on Bigger Pockets. And then we're building a, a one-off disposable podcast, which I'm sure you guys will be on, uh, on Clubhouse, where it's basically going to be once a week and the content dissolves. I'm not recording it. I don't care. I love podcasts. I've had two. Your guys' podcast is great. I probably will build another standalone podcast, but I really, 
I like the idea of disposed value. Mm -hmm. You know, I can give you something, but you need to be there to get it. And if not, it's gone. You know, it's just like something that I think is the opposite of what, uh, you know, everybody's doing. I don't want to scale everything. (laughs) It's just too much work. You guys know, it's like, I just don't want to do everything that I have to over promote. I'll do, you know, a minimum to make sure. But I think, you know, for me, building these brands and focusing on the actual part of the Zen part, you know, which I do in my life as well, meditating and reading and all of those things has just made my approach to real estate that much easier. I have literally no stress about investing. When stuff goes wrong on flips, uh, it doesn't make any difference to me. I don't want to lose money, but I buy well, so I'm not going to lose money. It's just about if I'm going to make a little or a lot. And I think trying to help new investors get to that point and get out and see properties is really what we're there for without putting any pressure on people, you know, buy, 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 especially in this market. But yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. Always appreciate the commentary. I think we're the three of us have a different approach. And I think it's really what, you know, more people need to soak up because it's you can get over focused on trying to win. And there's a lot of different ways to win in real estate. And it's not always getting the deal. There's so many deals in my life that I've won because I did not get them because I was able to say like, ah, yeah, doesn't feel right. Going to pass. And I've lost on plenty. If you're a good investor, you lose on deals all the time. But that's fine, too. That's the karma that comes back later. I missed on a couple, got bombed on a couple. But in general, I'm still going forward. That's great. Thanks Thanks so much, Jonathan. It's been a long time coming, but I'm glad we were finally able to make this a reality. (laughs) Yeah, I think I forced you guys to have me on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to maybe having you again on the podcast in, in a little bit. I'm sure we have a ton to talk about. But thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Brick by Brick podcast. If you liked this episode, we would certainly appreciate your feedback. You can always contact me or Ryan. I'm John, J-O-H-N at LibertyHudson.com. Ryan is R-Y-A-N at LibertyHudson.com. If you are capable of subscribing to the podcast and the platform that you're listening to, we would appreciate that. Always welcome your feedbacks and comments. And uh, until next time, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit us at BrickXBrickRealEstate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and BrickXBrickRealEstate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick podcast.